Today's reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, Deer, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with raid, Rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The word of the Lord. Is everyone comfortable? Good. move my arms. Ah, uh, Benny, you don't have any arms. Oh. Will you or will you not sing the song? Well, you see, sir, our parents taught us to stand up for what we believe in. And God wants us to do what's right. And there's a lot of stuff in that song that's not right. 
So, we don't mean to be a bother. We hope you understand. But we cannot sing that song. I understand, boys. You do? Oh, yes. I understand that you're bad buddies. prepare for this week's sermon, I went back through my old sermon notes looking for my previous notes on this particular story. I looked through my files online and I couldn't find anything. And so I thought that was a little strange. I know that I hadn't preached this text recently, but my notes had to be around here somewhere. And so I opened my trusty old filing cabinet and started thumbing through my paper notes that I had before I filed everything electronically and still nothing. I went through all of the sermons that I had preached during my time here and nothing. And I was quite confused because I know that I have preached this text before. And then I realized I haven't preached this text before. The story has just been stuck in my head since high school. <laughs> you see, when I was in high school, I worked for Miss Lois when she was the daycare director at Batavia Covenant Church in Batavia. And there was a season that I was there where I hung out with the kindergartners every day uh, while the teachers went to pick up the older kids from school. And the kids were allowed, as I recall, to, to watch one 20-minute video every day. And the daycare was packed full of video. We had every, every children's video you could imagine, including what I'm pretty sure was the entire VeggieTales collection. And yet, every single day, they chose the exact same <laughs> video. The story of Rack, Shack, and Benny. Although when I was talking to Lois about this, she very astutely pointed out that she's pretty sure that we teenagers liked it more than the kids did. She's probably right. So every day for an entire school year, I watched the VeggieTales video of Rack, Shack, and Benny. It turns out that I've never preached this text before. It's probably taken me 25 years to go back to it again. <laughs> In all honesty, I, I actually love this story so much that I cannot believe I've never preached on it before. It's incredible. It's another one of those stories that we tell our kids and then we forget to talk about later in life as adults. 
but it has some phenomenally valuable things to say to us. And so I'm really excited that we're talking about this this morning. This was, uh, I think, voted number three in the top four stories, children's stories that people wanted to hear this summer. So we are in week two of our series, Summer Shorts, where we're looking at stories that we typically talk about as kids, short stories, big impact. Now, unlike last week's VeggieTales clip, today's clip doesn't actually do a whole lot to help us understand the context of our story for this morning, so we're going to start there. So while, while we are doing this particular series in chronological order, it has been a little over 800 years since last week's sermon and this week's sermon. So in last week's sermon, we talked about the fact that Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years when God finally freed them under Moses' leadership. And then while God was trying to teach them what it means to be his faithful people, they spent 40 years wandering in the desert where God alone provided for their needs. It was a difficult time for the Israelites, and they were a people who were longing for home and longing for the land that God had promised them. And so just before they entered that land, Moses died, and he passed the leadership down to Joshua. And so once Joshua had led his people across the Jordan River and into their new land, they had just one last obstacle in their way, which was the city of Jericho. We talked about that last week, how they conquered Jericho. And so if you missed that, you can check it out on our podcast. So last week, we talked about how the people of God finally figured out what it meant to be faithful and obedient to God. But we also talked about the fact that they were very normal human beings, and so their obedience to the Lord did not last for too long. So fast forward 800 years, if you can do that. I know it's a huge amount of time. We obviously can't talk about all of the things that happened in the past 800 years. Uh, That's what we have the Bible for, but... Um, but what I do want to tell you is the place that the Israelites are in right now and the place that they are in in today's story is not so good. They are once again in exile, this time in Babylon. The leader of Babylon was King Nebuchadnezzar. We should also give Terry a round of applause for that scripture reading, by the way. Yeah. Every once in a while, you just get these lists and lists and weird names, and it's just, it's just a lot, so... Uh, Well done. So the leader of Babylon was King Nebuchadnezzar, and he invaded and captured the city of Jerusalem. And with that, he captured the kingdom of Judah, who in this story are the Israelites or God's people. The beginning of the book of Daniel Daniel coincides with what was the both political and militaristic rising of the Babylonian empire. And so under Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, Babylon grew and strengthened. And ultimately, throughout the book of Daniel, we end up seeing Babylon at the height of their world power. In Daniel chapter 1, we see Nebuchadnezzar implement or begin to implement his plan. And so the beginning of his plan was to pull the cream of the crop of the young people from the kingdom of Judah, so the younger people of God's people. He would choose the Israelites, the cream of the crop, so that he could train them. And the idea was that he would train them in his ways for both political and propaganda purposes. So, so these young men, Daniel and his three friends, part of God's people, were brought in to be trained in the language and literature of the Babylonians to essentially be immersed in their culture, which was the culture of their enemies. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were chosen What we have to note here is something we don't talk about, 
is that all four of them actually had different names originally. Their original names, their names that they were given initially, were names that indicated that they worshipped the one true God of Israel. So Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. And then there was Hananiah, which meant God is gracious. And then Mishael, which means who is like God. And then Azariah, which means God helps. So once the four of them were chosen to be, to be part of kind of the elite of Nebuchadnezzar's empire, Nebuchadnezzar was the one who changed their names. And so Daniel became Belshazzar, which was also the name of Nebuchadnezzar's son. Hananiah would become Shadrach. Mishael would become Meshach. And Azira would become Abednego. All of those names were the names of Babylonian gods. So clearly, we know already at this point in the story that Nebuchadnezzar is not interested in worshiping the God of Israel, which brings us to Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar decides to have a statue made. This would not have been at all uncommon during that time. Worshiping gods of idols and made of gold and all kinds of other things, that was very commonplace at the time, not for the Israelites, obviously, but for all the other cultures. But this wasn't just any statue made of God. Nebuchadnezzar's statue was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. And the text says that after this ginormous statue was built, that Nebuchadnezzar summoned the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the advisors and the treasurers and the judges and the magistrates and all of the other provincial officials to come to this dedication of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And then in the, next, the very next verse, as poor Terry had to read, it reiterates the exact same list of all of these incredibly important people who were summoned to the dedication of this statue. It reiterates that list of names for two main reasons. One is to show us how important Nebuchadnezzar is. Clearly, there is not a single important person in all of Babylon who will not be attending this dedication. There is no one greater in all of Babylon than King Nebuchadnezzar, and this text helps us to see that. In that same vein, it also creates this image for us of just the massive pomp and circumstance that went into this statue's dedication. And then the second reason that that list is reiterated is from a literary standpoint, it helps the reader understand that there is no one in all of Babylon who is not going to bow down to that statue. Sorry, that was kind of a double negative there. Everyone is going to bow down to that statue. Nobody will be excluded from that. So these duplicate lists are trying to show us that conformity is of incredibly high value for this particular culture because it helps us as the reader to understand how incredibly drastic it was that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not conform. And so in their unwillingness to conform, we see the very first example in scripture of religious persecution. You can imagine that somebody arrogant enough to build a 90-foot statue in his own honor and then invite everyone in Babylon to come and worship it, you can imagine that that kind of guy is not going to take too kindly to a few kids refusing to do what he says. Now, we don't know exactly how old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, but we know that they were young. Some speculate that they would have been somewhere between 15 and 20 years old. We don't know for sure, but we know that they were young, which makes what they did 
that much more incredible, right? So they refuse to do what Nebuchadnezzar has asked them to do. And they actually would have gotten away with it had it not been for some people who were more than likely jealous of Daniel and his three friends and their sudden rise in the Babylonian Empire. You see, up to this particular point, Nebuchadnezzar had been incredibly impressed with Daniel and his three friends, and he had promoted all of them into a position of authority in his kingdom. And so as Nebuchadnezzar stood back and surveyed all of Babylon, bowing down to his statue, more than likely he didn't notice these three Israelites somewhere in, the, somewhere in that sea of people, presumably the people who turned them in for refusing to worship were simply jealous colleagues. Regardless, the three were turned in for their refusal to worship the golden, golden idol, and Nebuchadnezzar was not going to have it. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to build his own ego here, and everyone else's loyalty to him just proves to him how great he is. And so when these three are disloyal to him, Nebuchadnezzar loses it. So the author of this story builds the tension right here at this point, because Nebuchadnezzar basically demands a private ceremony where he essentially instructs the band to start playing music again, and then demands Rakshak and Benny, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to worship the golden idol. And Nebuchadnezzar's response to what happens here says not only something about his own ego, but it introduces an incredibly important theological truth. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, what God will be able to rescue you or deliver you from my hand? And their answer actually sounds a little arrogant given the situation that they're in. They say, well, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And then they go on to say one of the most powerful verses spoken by someone in all of scripture from Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 17. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is genuinely amazing. They start their reply by acknowledging that God is powerful enough to save them from the fiery furnace. But then they don't stop there because they also acknowledge that while God can save them, he may choose not to. In other words, they realize that their refusal to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol may very well result in their being burned alive. And yet, even though they serve a God who can save them and may choose not to, even still, they will worship God alone. It's incredible. And it's incredible also because at this point of the story, the reader has no idea what is going to happen are they going to be martyred for their faith? Is God going to come in and do some kind of dramatic rescue? It's an incredible story all by itself, and it's, all, it's also a story that has significant implication about how we think about suffering today. But we'll get to that in just a minute. So obviously Nebuchadnezzar is even more irate than he already was, and he is not going to let these guys just walk away. And so he does what he says that he's going to do, and he has his men prepare the furnace 
by turning it up so that it's even hotter than it was before. In fact, the furnace is so hot that the soldiers who were to throw the three men in, the soldiers themselves died because of the heat. One commentary author profoundly noted at this particular point in the story that loyalty to a godless and foolish king brings death, not the life that one would expect. That is a wise word for us today amidst a culture that worships all kinds of things and people, that loyalty to a godless and foolish king brings death. Moving on. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace, and it ended up being Nebuchadnezzar himself who answers his own question. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He has his answer because he looks into the furnace not only to see the three uncharred Israelites, but a fourth figure that he says looks like the Son of God. Now, there are all kinds of thoughts and speculation on who or what was in the fiery furnace with them. Did Nebuchadnezzar say that the figure looked like the Son of the gods as a nod to the one who was to come, who would be called the Son of God? Was it the Holy Spirit? Was it just an angel of the Lord? Unfortunately, we have no way of knowing. But what we do know from the text is that it's fair to say that this was some kind of manifestation of Emmanuel, which means God with us. This was some form of God's presence with them. And so when Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace to be opened, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk out completely unscathed. They were so unharmed, in fact, that it details that they were fully dressed in robes and trousers and turbans that were undamaged from the flames. And so the story ends with Nebuchadnezzar declaring faith in the one true God. And then he even promotes Rakshak and Benny. It's an incredible story, isn't it? You can see why we would read this story to kids that has a very clear beginning, middle, and end. It's a good story. But there is so much in this for us as adults. First of all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego become these unbelievable role models to us of what it looks like to stay faithful to God in the face of idolatry. Either idols that were constructed by human hands or just those idols that we build up in our minds. While this is a main point of the story and worth an entire sermon in and of itself, we're actually just going to touch on that briefly because there's another piece of the story that I want to focus on today. But what we learn about how to be faithful in the face of idolatry, for, idolatry from these three men, these three kids, is so incredibly important. We live in a society of idols. It is our human nature to worship something or someone we all do. Most of us have all kinds of things that we worship. It's that one thing or that one person that we worship above all else. We've talked about this before, not too long ago, actually. We worship sports. We worship our jobs. We worship our stuff, our money, our cars. We worship job titles and climbing ladders or anything, really, that makes us feel important. We worship celebrities. We worship politicians. We even worship our own country. We also worship people, specific people, in our lives. We worship our significant other. We worship our parents. We worship our kids. 
We worship whatever it is that tends to fill up so much of our time and energy and passion and focus. And in the face of all of the things that our culture, as well as our own human nature, tempt us to worship, we have this amazing example in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of unwavering faith and devotion to God and to God alone. So much so that they would rather lose their lives than worship anything other than God. It's incredible. The church in America today would be so different if we worshiped with that degree of unwavering faithfulness. It is what God calls us to do. We just have a tendency to hold that peace a little too loosely, don't we? In fact, while we serve a God of grace, I would dare say that this is an area where we cut ourselves a little too much slack when it comes to our devotion or allegiance to God alone. Because we know, we know in our heart of hearts that we have pledged allegiance to all kinds of other things and people. Because it's socially acceptable to do so, we don't really bat an eye at it anymore. But the thing that I really want us to talk about from the story for, the, for this morning is what they say in verses 17 and 18. Because I meant what I said earlier, that I think that this is one of the most powerful sentences uttered by anyone other than Jesus in all of Scripture. The degree of faith that it takes to utter those words literally takes my breath away. Verse 17 alone is a tremendous statement of faith. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. There doesn't appear to be a single ounce of doubt in that statement. They know that they know that they know that their God has the power to save them from something as inevitably deadly as a fiery furnace. They know that God can do this. They know that this powerful furnace has nothing on the power of their God. So that verse is awe-inspiring enough, but what comes next is so amazing to me. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods. In a world where we will do almost anything to numb pain, this verse is shocking. They know. They know that God can save them, yet they know that he may not. They don't barter. They don't ask questions. They don't weigh the risk-reward They just recognize that their faith is not reliant upon how God chooses to act or not act in any given moment, including that one. They believe that God is worthy of their praise, even if God doesn't act in the way that they hope he will. They believe that God is worthy of their singular devotion, even if it means that they will lose their life. And here's the rub. They would lose their life knowing full well that God could have saved them. There's a man named Tremper Longman who wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel, and in it he says that these friends have no confidence that they will survive this ordeal. They know that that type of confidence is nothing but the most irksome of presumptions. Now, I would have used a much stronger word than irksome, 
but his sentiment is right on. What a shocking presumption to assume that God will save them just because they want him to. And yet, isn't that what we do so often in our own lives of faith? As if our faith is some kind of bartering system? I'll worship you if you do this for me. I'll come to church this many Sundays and you'll provide for me in this way. I'll pray every single day if you just heal this person or fix my marriage or whatever it is that we're bartering with God for this week. When you live in such an eye-for-an-eye society, it's hard not to bring that mentality into our journey of faith. Even though we don't, we don't really want God to be fair when it comes to our own forgiveness or salvation. We do want God to be fair in every other area of our lives. And so we try to force God into our measure of fairness. If I do this, then God should do that. It's only fair. So it's mind-blowing to read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and see that they had no pretenses regarding how this scenario was going to play out. I imagine that many of us would think, I gave up everything. I gave up everything to stick my neck out there for God. The least he can do is not let me die, right? Because that is the way that our world works. But for these three friends, the love and faithfulness of God was enough. They didn't need to be promised safety. They didn't even need to be promised their physical life. They would worship God alone, and they would trust that however God responded or didn't was never up to them to begin with. This is the same reason that so many of us were so captivated by the death of Rachel Scott, who was the first victim of the Columbine High School shooting in 1999. The story goes that the shooter approached Rachel first and asked her if she believed in God with a gun pointed at her, and she said yes, and he took her life. I was in college at the time. I'm just a few years older than Rachel was. And I remember the conversations that took place for months and months after that happened where people would ask each other, what would you have done? If you had a gun pointed at your head and you were asked that question, would you say yes or would you deny God? And as much as American Christians like to talk about the increasing, the increasing issue of persecution of Christian faith in our country, we have no idea what it is to be persecuted in faith in comparison to what our brothers and sisters around the world face on a daily basis just trying to be faithful. We have no idea. So who knows? Who knows what we would have done if we were in the position of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who knows what we would have done if we had been in Rachel Scott's position? Who knows what we would do if we were trying to live as followers of Christ in a nation where Christianity is against the law? Realistically and thankfully, most of us will never have to experience that. But the way that we take to heart the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego does have an impact on our daily life of faith. Because faith in God is not a bartering system. We either believe that God is holy and worthy of our worship or we don't. Believing that God is only worthy of our worship if he does something we like is a very dangerous way to live this life because the world is broken and life is hard and God is only worthy of our, if God is only worthy of our worship when things are awesome, then we are going to spend a lot of our time apart from God. And if we believe that God owes us what we want, 
whether that's stuff or relationships or wealth or safety or physical life itself, we are going to live constantly disappointed. If God is worthy of our worship, he is worthy of our worship in every moment and in all situations or not at all. How you view the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has much to say about your understanding of suffering in this world. Can God be good and worthy of our worship while we suffer? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would say yes. And think about this. They said yes before they even knew about eternal life with Jesus Christ. This was an Old Testament story. To them, God was so worthy of their worship that they were willing to die for him without even having the promise of life after death. So it turns out that this fun little children's story actually speaks to some of the most difficult and profound aspects of this life. This cutesy little story of Rack, Shack, and Benny actually calls us to some pretty important questions ourselves. Is God worthy of our worship regardless of our circumstances? Does our faithfulness to God promise us the life that we want? Is God any less good if we experience suffering in this world? And maybe most importantly, is our salvation enough of a reason to praise the name of Jesus no matter the cost? Rakshak and Benny may not be able to help you answer these questions for yourself, but the God that they worshipped can. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes I think it's difficult for us to connect to some of these stories that happen in the Old Testament that seem so crazy. It's impossible or difficult at very best for us to imagine being in a place where we are asked to put our faith above our lives. And so, God, we do wonder, would we do that? What would we say? What would we have done if we were in this situation or that situation? But God, I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts where we are right now and that you would help us to understand the implications of this story for our very real life right now. God, that we would be bold and courageous enough to ask the question of ourselves, is our salvation in you enough for us to praise you in all circumstances and in all situations, no matter the cost? Are you worthy of worship everywhere or nowhere? Is our salvation enough? God, I believe that it is. I believe that our salvation in you is enough. And yet, God, I know that so sometimes there are days when our attention is distracted, where our worship is pulled elsewhere, where we put other things and other people above you. And so, God, would you speak your truth to us today to help us recognize to help us recognize those places in our own lives where we have idols, where we have put something above you. God, help us to know that in your love for us and in your grace for us, that you desire our full attention. You've made us, you've saved us, and we belong to you. 
And so, God, may we worship you because you are holy, because you are good, and ultimately, Lord, because you are worthy. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.